If I have not had the chance to meet you, my name is Brandon. I serve as one of the pastors here at Summit Midtown. We're really, really glad to have you here this morning. Each week, we take time to hear and to put ourselves under Scripture, and we believe that Scripture is God's Word to us. Um, And so we want to take some space to open up Scripture together, to have it taught to us, to listen and to respond uh, in communion and in song and in other ways. Um, So I want to invite you to go ahead and grab a Bible, because we'll be using that. You can turn to Matthew chapter 4, which you have one of these red Bibles around you. should be on page 857. To set up this time, um, as elders, just for those of you who are new to kind of our tradition, maybe, or you you grew up in a church that did it differently, our our sermon time, uh, our elders are responsible, so there's three of us here at some Midtown that are responsible for the doctrine of the church. And so we we make sure that, you know, the stuff that's taught here is orthodox uh, and and historically Christian, and then whoever stands up here are people who are people that you can trust and are credible, uh, mature believers, filled with the Spirit, Um, and so... We, it's such an honor to be able to, uh, you know, every once in a while, God brings really special people into your life, and uh, just at the right time. And so I'm super honored this morning. Some of you guys have, have heard Hannah teach here before, so she really doesn't need an introduction, but some of you are new, and you don't know how amazing she is. But Hannah Anderson, uh, a couple years ago, Hannah and I got to cross paths and do some work together in ministry and collaborate. Uh, she uh, is a, an author, has written some great books that you should definitely buy, um, but uh, she has taught, and we actually uh, had, had learned from her through her teaching first before we met her, and then we got the opportunity to collaborate on some ministry initiatives uh, and, and training for pastors and church planters, and, and so over the years, we just, Hannah's been in and out of our community and has been a really significant person shaping kind of behind the scenes and, and caring for, really, Emily and I. Um, we've developed such a close relationship with her. She's a, a wife to Nathan, a mother of uh, just beautiful children, now a college student, and uh, she's just such a gift. She's such a gift to us. And I know that she's, she's a gift to teacher, but more than that, she's just a person who deeply loves Jesus and, and loves the church, despite having been in ministry and experienced uh, how the sausage is made. She's still here showing up, uh, her and her husband, and she, uh, she just has an amazing, she uh, lives in Virginia, um, was a visiting teacher here during the pandemic, so many of you saw her uh, virtually. Uh, but it's such an honor to have you back. Hannah, she led our workshop yesterday on uh, men and women serving together in ministry, and that's an important part of our culture that Hannah has really helped shape uh, the vision uh, for. And so, uh, honored to have Hannah here with us this morning. Just a moment, she's going to come and teach. Uh, but before she does, I want to just uh, read from Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11, which is where she'll be teaching from this morning. So, Hannah, thanks just for being here. Hear these words from Matthew to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Then the tempter approached him and said, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. He answered, it is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will give his angels orders concerning you and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus told him, it is also written, do not test the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus told him, go away, Satan, 
for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only, serve only him. Then the devil left him and the angels came and began to serve him. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, hello again to everyone who was here yesterday. Uh, thanks for sticking with me um, through a morning of a lot of content. Um, and thank you again as well for your welcome when I come. I, I told folks yesterday that this is no longer... Um, I, I'm not, I don't like to travel away from home. I do a lot of it, and I don't like it. Um, but coming here does not feel like a burden. It feels very natural, and over the years that we've gotten to know each other, um, I can come in and come out and just feel like I've been with friends and family. So thank you for providing that space of welcome for me, even as I know all of you have been gracious to receive the ministry um, that God has given me here. So one of the other things that when you travel a lot, too, is you very quickly lose a sense of time. Um, you are in and out, and if people, if you travel for work too, sometimes um, I'll get back home and I'll be like, "What day is it again? You know, what child has to be dropped off where? What's going on here?" And through the month of January, I, my husband and I were calculating it just based on some. Um, I was away for a week of school. We had some needs in our extended family that carried me away, and I was gone half of January by the end of all the total. And, um, but that was fine because I didn't have any New Year's resolutions to keep. <laughs> because, you know, you get off these rhythms, right? And so when I realized it was February, like, I mean, literally just was like, oh, it's February. I was like, I made it through dry January without actually trying, you know? <laughs> Because I was just so dang busy. But I think one of the things that happens in this time of year where we're relaunching, right? We're in this mode of, and maybe some of you are still keeping your resolutions. Anybody still on track? Um, all right, can we have a round of applause? <laughs> I've read that there's like a point in January where statistically everyone's done. Right, like you, re if you can get past that point, then maybe your resolution will stick. And and what I think is so curious about how we do this um, kind of uh, resolving to be better or to change something about ourselves is that we go in with this kind of force and energy and this belief about sticking to it, and hard work will get us through. Right. So whether it's trying to cut your craving for sugar or cut out carbs, what it comes down to in many people's minds is you just have to battle your way through this. You just have to fight through this. You have to resist. And that strength is the key to transformation. And I want us to just kind of note that about our culture and the kind of categories that we're bringing to the text today. Because when we read of Jesus's temptation, we are going to import all of the ways that we fight temptation, or we've been taught to fight or resist things that are our cravings, or resist these things that are bad for us. We're going to carry that in 
if we don't let the text unpack and reveal itself. And so what I'd like us to suggest right here at the beginning is that these kind of cultural narratives about resisting, digging deep, staying on track, and that strength is the key to transformation may not be great for your spiritual formation, right? That may not be what God is doing in you. And, you know, as the Apostle Paul alludes to in his epistles, there's the possibility that weakness is where God's strength is manifest. What if vulnerability is the way to growth? What if God's strength is made perfect, not in your strength and in your stick to but in your weakness? So when we come to this text, we're going to pick up where we left off last week, where Brandon brought us through the baptism of Jesus. And I know you've talked a bit about the wilderness, because John goes out to the wilderness, and then he's baptizing at the Jordan. The people come out to be baptized. Jesus comes out to be baptized. And within the scripture, the typology of the wilderness is not just a place of temptation, but a place of encounter, right? So, so this is a place where something's going to happen. So when we see the wilderness come up again in verse 1, that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, there's this anticipation that there's an encounter. Something's going to happen. And in the long run, is going to be an encounter with God. But that's not the only thing the text tells us. He's led into the wilderness to be tempted or tested. Now, now this idea of being led into the wilderness for an encounter or for testing or refinement or growth goes beyond the text. This was actually, um, you, you know, a phenomenon that happened in the early church in the three, four, five hundreds. Maybe you've heard of the desert fathers or the desert mothers, that this idea of moving into places of scarcity or of environmental scarcity, like literal wilderness and desert, was understood to be a place that you could tap into an encounter with God and be tested in your humanity, in your human flesh, in very embodied ways. So maybe you've heard names like um, Melania of Rome, or St. Mary of Mesopotamia, St. Mary of Egypt, or my favorite, St. Macrina. Anybody heard of St. Macrina? Okay, so St. Macrina is the patron saint of older sisters because she helped her younger brothers. Um, maybe you've heard of Basil or Gregory the Great, um, Gregory the Theologian. These were church fathers that were instructed by their sister Macrina. And all of this is happening in proximity to the desert or the wilderness, that there was a deep spirituality within these people that was formed through deprivation and scarcity. And so this idea of the wilderness being a spiritually formative place is not just in the scripture, but it's within church history and church tradition. And so when John the Baptist, as the new Elijah, comes to the wilderness teaching and baptizing, we expect that spiritual transformation is taking place. 
And of course, what Matthew's doing in part of this is he's making allusions to Israel's own wilderness journey. And that's come up already, and so hopefully you remember that from previous sermons, that part of what Matthew is doing is presenting Jesus as the fulfillment of Israel. And in fact, that's really explicit in chapter 3, when John goes to baptize Jesus, well, Jesus comes to be baptized, and John resists, and Jesus says, allow it for now, because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. And so this idea that Matthew is really foregrounding Jesus as the fulfillment of Israel and of all righteousness, this idea of fulfillment, I think Brandon talked about it last week as something rhymes, that there's something in the past in Israel's history that is being brought forward. It happened like this in the past, but now it's being transformed and reissued in Jesus. So, so there's this fulfillment language even within the temptation. So so what's the typology here? What are we seeing? Well, we're kind of seeing allusions to Israel being in the wilderness, their temptations, their failures to put their faith in God, their, their inability to live out their identity as God's delivered people. And you even see some allusions to that in this first temptation when the devil comes to Jesus and says, turn these stones into bread. And if you know the history of Israel and some of the things that happened in the wilderness, you might, you might remember manna. You might remember their hunger and their desire for food. And God gives them manna or this bread from heaven. So there's kind of an allusion to that. That the part of what's happening here is that Jesus is overcoming in ways that Israel could not. But there's also another layer of illusion and typology, Jesus as the second Adam. Instead of the garden temptation, we're outside of the garden, we're in the wilderness of life, we're east of Eden, and so the devil comes to us here east of Eden, he comes to Jesus in the wilderness, but the shape of the temptation is very similar. It's very similar to what happened in the garden. There is the temptation to eat something, right? So hunger is key, especially in this first encounter. It's that same temptation in the garden to take the fruit, to consume it, to eat it. There's the twisting of Scripture and Jesus responding with truth and that kind of nature of attack that sets up what is true, what has God said, what do I know about him to be true, what do I know about myself to be true. And so there's all of these things happening on a literal, typological, symbolic level. And now that we've got that out of our system, I want to press the point for us that for Jesus, while there is this presentation happening that we need to see, this was not abstract. His experience in the wilderness was not theoretical. He is more than a type. And we have to be very careful about this when we read the text and we see what Matthew is doing or other authors are doing to try to make these connections for us. These are written for us to see the big picture, 
But our experience of the text is not Jesus' experience of the temptation. And we must be careful not to turn Jesus into a function or mechanism. We must not treat him as a means to an end, as if his life and his encounters are purely some form of theater or performance art. Because if we treat his life and ministry that way, it will not fulfill righteousness. Remember what Jesus says about his baptism, that he has to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And if you remember from previous sermons, we've defined righteousness as wholeheartedly doing the will of God, not performatively doing the will of God, not typologically doing the will of God, but wholeheartedly doing the will of God. What's the point? The point is for Jesus to be truly righteous here, it must be real. His experience and behavior, his responses must be human, personal, and embodied. And so just as he was baptized in his humanity, he must be truly tempted in the wilderness, in his humanity. And that means his temptation is going to be deeply personal, deeply embodied. And in some ways, it's unique to him. It's centered on his identity and his purpose and his calling. And I would even say, if we read the text closely, forgive my framing of this, but he's kind of being set up. The text says that the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness for the purpose of testing by the devil. And he is fasting. And in this sense, the Spirit is putting Jesus intentionally in a place of both bodily weakness and environmental scarcity. And that goes against everything that we have been culturally conditioned to think about resisting temptation. We are taught that to resolve to be better people, to, be, to overcome our temptations, we have to tap into this level of fitness. We have to train and prepare and make a plan. Like, what is it? If you don't, oh, something about planning to fail, fail to plan. I don't know. They put it on my gym wall this week. It was like, commit to this or something. But Jesus is led intentionally into scarcity and vulnerability and fragility. And I think the fasting is really important here. And if you are familiar with the practices of fasting or you've read about it, you'll know that it is intended to put you in a place of dependence and weakness. It's not intended to be an exercise in self-control in the sense of performance and your capacity on display. Lynn Babb writes about it this way. When we fast, we throw ourselves on the mercy of God. The freedom we experience in fasting comes from stepping outside human wisdom and human strength. And that aligns exactly with the Spirit leading to him to a place not just of physical inability, but the entire environment reflecting this dearth, 
of life, that this is a place of weakness. And I want you to carry that into this text and understand the framing of it because it's important to understand what's happening when the devil comes to him. Now, you've probably heard sermons on this text before. It's a very classic one. But if your experience is anything like mine, it's very possible to come to this text and read it very theologically or as an abstraction. And so we read the devil's temptation and where he begins by saying, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to, come to, to become bread. And every temptation starts with this phrase, if you are the son of God. And here we sit 2,000 years and multiple church councils later, and we say, aha, the devil is testing the divinity of Christ. This is what is under attack. And so we read Satan and Jesus' dialogue as primarily about establishing abstract truth claims. Okay? So when the devil says, um, you know, he, he tempts him to throw himself down and Jesus responds in a certain way, we say, oh, do not test the Lord your God. Jesus is saying, I am God. Do not test me. That's not what he's saying. Instead, he is rightly remembering and aligning himself with who the Father is and who he is as his son. And so when he says, don't tempt God, he's saying, I'm not going to do that because that would be to act in a presumptuous way on God's mercy. And as a wholehearted, obedient son, I'm not going to do that. Or we read, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. And with this frame of this theological test, we might say, oh, instead of falling down to worship Satan, Satan needs to fall down and worship Jesus because he's the true king of the world. No, he's speaking of God the Father. He's saying, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. And he himself, as a faithful son, wholeheartedly, is worshiping his father. And so if we, we see this merely as an abstraction, then this just becomes a debate in counterpoint. And Jesus wins the debate by having the right Bible verses. And the trouble with this is that this frame leaves us to interpret temptation in our own life as a matter of cognition, or the right doctrine, or enough Bible verses. And if we just have the right one to fling at Satan in the moment, we will be able to escape temptation. Now, I stand before you as a five-year Bible quiz veteran, sword drill champion, and a person whose work is deeply invested in the Scripture and the Word of God. And yet, I know, as you do, that when temptation comes, the last thing you're thinking about are theological or doctrinal realities. You know that when temptation presents itself, it is deeply visceral and personal. You know how it pulls at your deepest needs, wounds, and pains, and that's what makes it a temptation. It wouldn't be a temptation if it were just an abstract issue. It is a temptation 
because it is personal. And so when we see in verse 2 that Jesus is fasted and he is hungry, we know that feeling. We know the gnawing ache of deprivation. We know the loneliness, the poverty, the rejection, the fear, the pain that sits behind every temptation that hits us. And we know that it comes when we're feeling most vulnerable. Because the devil is not so concerned with challenging your abstract beliefs and getting you to change your mind on an issue. He's trying to break you. He's trying to destroy. And if you are at all familiar with the scripture, if you, like me, have been in Bible quizzing, you might remember verses about the way Satan attacks. He attacks in completely ungentlemanly ways. He is a roaring lion. He is an adversary who is prowling, looking for anyone he can devour. Jesus warned Peter. He said, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And I think the one that really hits to me is Revelation, how it describes the devil's work, that great dragon, the ancient serpent, bringing that image of the serpent in the garden full circle. The devil and Satan who deceives the whole world, the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night. What a horrible thing. What a horrible thing to leverage people's weaknesses against them to see the point of vulnerability and come at it. This idea of the devil or Satan being accuser is the idea a bit of like someone who's bringing charges against um, maybe a prosecutor. It's, it's the language we see in Job 1 and 2 where, where Satan comes before God and says, you know, Job's not that great. He wouldn't do these things if you weren't blessing him. And just finding that point of access and poking, poking, poking. But the thing about charges, the thing about a prosecutor, is that the charges have to be personal to have significance. They have to be possible. They have to stick. And that's why the nature of temptation is so deeply personal and why it's located in your life and identity. And I think if we go back to the text, this is made abundantly clear when we focus on the first part of the temptations. What does the devil say to Jesus? If you are the son of God. Now, I've made the case that this is not a theological claim about Jesus' divinity. So what is it? Well, Matthew's very helpful to us in this respect with the way he lays out his gospel. Because we just saw the declaration from heaven at Jesus' baptism that the Father says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And as soon as those words are out of the mouth of heaven, the Spirit leads Jesus 
into the wilderness to be tempted based on those very words. If you are the son of God, if you are who you have been said to be, and so the temptations focus on God's declaration of his chosenness and his belovedness. And it's startling in the text when you make that connection. He doesn't even get time to enjoy it. He doesn't even get to rest in it. He is immediately taken out to be tempted in this understanding of himself and his calling and his relationship to the Father. But perhaps you notice this transition and it's all too familiar. Perhaps there are times in your life when you've felt that chosenness and belovedness, when you feel blessed and known. And there are times like like heaven has opened and spoken with clarity over who you are and what you are to do in this world, and you are centered. And then wham, you promptly walk into a season of scarcity. Or worse, you're led into a season of scarcity, wilderness, weakness. And you find yourself facing challenges and temptations that you never expected, would have never have thought you would be facing. And you find yourself asking, am I someone who is deeply loved and chosen by God? Can I trust his words? Or do I need to turn to other sources of power provision, and purpose. Is God truly my Father? And I think this is to bring some, a quote forward that Brandon offered us last week. This is when knowing our identity in God's love and our dependence on him helps us face temptation, even when it takes us by surprise. Whether we realize it or not, David Benner writes, our being grounded in God's love, love is our identity and our calling. In order for our knowing of God's love to be transformational, it must become the basis of our identity. And so really, if we're being honest, it's not that much of a surprise that this is exactly where the devil tacks. If the knowledge of our chosenness and belovedness is what draws us into wholehearted obedience, if it is what draws us into righteousness, then it is going to be the place where the devil comes after us. In each case, Jesus confirms that God is enough, that God has named him as his son, that God is the source of his life, his safety, and his future, and that God alone is to be glorified. And that's all very nice and neat. But there's a hard point of this text for me. I understand the devil's attack. I understand the challenge to what is true and why he would come after us in personal ways. I understand the temptation, the actual real temptation to seek an alternative source of provision and power and goodness rather than our chosenness and belovedness in the Father. What I don't understand is the spirit leading him to this place. What kind of God in one moment names us chosen and beloved and in the next leads us to the wilderness and leads us to the devil? 
I mean, don't we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil? And yet, here in this text, explicitly, the Spirit leads him into the wilderness to be tempted. And this is what God does. He takes us places we would never go ourselves. He takes us places we would never choose. And what you see in the movement in the chapters, chapter 3, what's fascinating is there's a lot of volitional movement. John comes. The people go. Jesus comes. And, and they're choosing this movement. Even if they believe, you know, like I should be doing this, they're choosing it. We get to verse 1 of chapter 4, and the Spirit is leading and so when we find our pla- ourselves in these places of wilderness scarcity and temptation, and we didn't choose to go there, it is very natural to turn on God and blame him for placing us there, or at least strongly question his wisdom in doing that. And this is exactly what happened to Israel, right? We're looking at these kind of parallels, and when Israel ends up in the wilderness for their own redemption, all they can think about is, I would have rather died in Egypt than out here. If only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, they cry. Instead, you brought us into this wilderness to make us all die of hunger. Why did you ever bring us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? This is the true natural response being led places to testing that pulls on your deepest hungers and saying, what are you thinking? Why are you doing this? It would have been better if you just killed me back there. And so I want to ask this question. I want to be curious, not just write God off. If the devil's purpose and temptation and leading us or... or meeting us in our vulnerabilities, is to break or accuse us. What might be God's purposes? Maybe. What might be God's purposes? Well, I want us to remember again that the wilderness is a place of encounter. And I want us to remember again that temptation is deeply personal deeply tailored to our lives and our identities. And I want to suggest that part, perhaps part of what God is doing, is establishing us in our sense of chosenness and belovedness. That his goal in testing is to confirm that in our lives, not to undermine it. How would that do that, though? How would it not just be a spiritual gauntlet that we have to overcome and survive? Well, I want to suggest that what temptation does is it reveals to us and makes us aware of our places of weaknesses and of our brokenness. Remember, if temptation is personal, It's going to show up in places of hunger. It's going to show up in scarcity and want in your unique pain. Now, the devil wants to take that and leverage it and accuse you and offer you illicit or even temporary sources 
of killing that pain. But in attacking these places, the devil tips his hand. Because temptation ends up exposing those parts of us that we have successfully boxed up and hidden away and convinced ourselves we're not actually broken. Those parts of us that we have hidden away from the love and welcome of God. Those parts of us that have not yet been transformed, that have not yet been deemed chosen and beloved. Speaking explicitly of the temptation, Henry Nouwen writes this in The Way of the Heart. Solitude is the place of the great struggle and the great encounter. The struggle against the compulsions of the false self and the encounter with the loving God who offers himself as the substance of the new self. And so the fact that the temptations hinge around, are you the son of God? Are you truly who God says you are? Are you truly chosen and beloved? Are you truly the daughter of God? Are you truly his child? And is he a faithful father? Is what is going to heal you when that place is exposed. And it's going to make you a wholehearted person who can respond not just in performance, but in true righteousness. And so in God's will, temptation brings forward our hungers and desires and loss, and it gives us an opportunity to see them clearly, to name them, and to invite God to apply his loving kindness parts of us that we would rather not know. And so the fact that you would have never gone to the wilderness on your own is precisely the point. You would never have done this. You would never have welcomed this. And so the Spirit does it for you. And the same circumstances that the devil tries to use to destroy you, God will use to heal you. He wants your wholeness. He wants your wholeheartedness with him and with others. Because as Peter tells us, this adversary, this devil that is prowling and roaring, looking to devour you, if you resist him, firm in faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering, suffering is being experienced by fellow believers throughout the world, this is what will happen, Peter promises. The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. The places that expose us, that feel vulnerable and dangerous, in which we feel weak, are the very places that God will restore, establish, and strengthen you in. And this is exactly what we see happening in verse 11. Jesus resists, firm in the faith. And then the angels come and minister to him and serve him. The angels do the bidding of God, just as the devil said they did. But they do it in God's way and in God's timing. 
And it would be easy, again, to read this as a particular kindness to Jesus because he is the Son of God and he is different than you and he is special. But this is more a statement on who God is, who our loving Heavenly Father is, and how he sends angels to minister to us in our weakness, to minister the truth of your belovedness to you, and that he will restore, establish, strengthen, and support you, even in the wilderness. So what do we take away from this? What what does this mean if it's not an abstraction? The first thing I want to suggest to you is that wilderness and temptation is a part of spiritual formation. It's normal. Receive it. Be willing to be led here. You have not done something wrong to find yourself in the wilderness, being tempted in ways that you would never have expected. This is not a place of sin. You are being led here for God's purposes. You are being led to know your belovedness in reality, not just in theory. But because of the nature of temptation, it's going to be a direct assault on your sense of self and your life. So don't be surprised if it strikes at very painful places where you feel most vulnerable. Lean into that. Just as Jesus' temptation was not an abstraction and Job's trials were not abstractions, You are being invited into a place that feels dangerous and scary and undefended. Trust God to lean into that and let your pain and vulnerability be exposed so that he can meet you with intimate knowledge and intimate care. And know that this suffering is not meaningless. Trust God's purposes Resist the devil and trust that God is using this as an act of confirming your true self in him. It will require that those hidden places be exposed. It will require knowing and learning what is true about God and true about yourself in ways that you never have, and you're going to want to hide from it. You're going to want to pull away. It will feel dangerous, and you will feel like you're going to fail. And honestly, maybe you will. Maybe you will. But even your failure is going to be an opportunity to know your belovedness. Because maybe you're sitting here saying, well, this sermon is a week too late because I already gave in. I already failed. I already succumbed. And I want you to know that what God says to you is you are chosen and beloved. And even your failures cannot make this untrue. So look for forgiveness. Look for a God who restores. Look for God's provision. Watch for God to heal you. Look for ministering angels. Because the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, establish, and support you after you have suffered. Watch for attending angels and be an attending angel. Because of the nature of temptation, it's deeply personal, and no one can go through your temptations for you. And you cannot go through anyone else's. But as communities, we can support the process that the Spirit is leading us into. 
we can midwife each other to new life in God. We can make space, extend forgiveness, and speak the words of grace and blessing and healing that we need to heal here. And we can do this until we all learn that, yes, indeed, God is our Father, and we are his children, chosen and beloved. Father, we do not understand the way you choose to act. We do not understand why you lead us into the wilderness, why you allow us to be tested in painful personal ways. We choose to trust that it is your goodness that does this. We choose to trust what you say, that we are chosen and beloved, and that you are healing us through your Son. Thank you for the power of Christ. Thank you for his example, but thank you for his wholehearted obedience and righteousness. Make us people who can be wholeheartedly followers of him. We ask this in his name. Amen.